As I was preparing for the message, I was reminded of something my speech professor said in college. He said that by the time you reach college, you have had hours of teaching on how to speak, but probably no teaching on how to listen. I think this is true when it comes to hearing and listening to God's word. I mean, if you were to just try to put it together, how many hours of of preaching and instruction on God's word have you heard? I was trying to think today, just if you've only come in the time I've been here and you come every service, Sunday morning and Wednesday night. I mean, that that's that's a lot of preaching preached on average, probably twice a week, every week for 20 years. I mean, that's and I preach about it, 45 minutes to an hour each time. That's just a lot of hours of listening. But how do we how much teaching have we had on this is how we hear God's word been instructed on God's word. But how do we hear God's word? How do we listen to God's word now listening to God's word and how we listen to God's word is really important. Listen to what one of my favorite authors says about this. He said it is made plain throughout scripture that the health of God's people depends on their attentiveness to his word. He went on to say, a deaf church is a dead church. That is an unalterable principle. Well, if that's true, and and I believe it is, how do we listen to God's word to ensure we're not a deaf church? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Open your Bible, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, We're going to look at verses 20. Through 22, it should be on page 907 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We're actually going to look at two passages. One we're going to look at here, one I'll put up on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20. Do not utterly reject prophecies, but examine everything. Hold firmly to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then in Acts chapter 17, we have this. Now, the people in Thessalonica or the people in Berea were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a significant number of prominent Greek women and men. The title of the message tonight is Listening to God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather, to study your Word. Thank you for the freedom uh, that we have to study your Word. Thank you, Lord, that, that we live in a time where we can hold your Word in our hands, in our, in our native language, and in our even in our preferred translation. What blessings are ours in this, O oh God? Father, we want to be good hearers of the word. We want to have ears to hear what you're saying to us every time. Every time we open your word, every time we listen to your word, Father. So tonight as we look at this passage, these two passages, let your Holy Spirit come and make your word living and active in our lives. Let him help us to be good hearers. Let him work in our lives and and help us, Lord, to to do what we ought to do with your word every time that we hear it. 
Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, these two passages, 1 Thessalonians and Acts, are, are basically parallel passages. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5 and 22 is instructions on what to do. Acts 17, 11, and 12 is a visual illustration of how this is lived out. As Paul is winding down his letter to the Thessalonians, he gives them a series of instructions to help them stay strong as the individual, to stay, I'm sorry, he gave them a set of instructions to help the church uh, and to stay strong and for the individual disciples to live as they should. Where we're picking up, Paul is instructing on how to maintain a healthy spiritual life. It, it actually starts in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Do not quench the Spirit. All of these are what individual disciples of Jesus are to do to maintain a healthy spiritual life. But what we're looking at and what we're focusing on is the reality that to maintain a healthy spiritual life, disciples of Jesus must listen to God's Word correctly. This is part of the reason Paul tells what he tells in verses 20 through 22. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about don't reject prophecies. But in Acts, it's clear it's talking about preaching. So what I want to do is I want us to understand the the connection between prophecy and preaching in God's Word. In God's Word, prophets were men and women called by God to speak His message under the guidance of And the unction of the Holy Spirit. Prophet's message included proclamation and prediction. Now often when we think about a prophet, our mind goes to the prediction aspect of the prophet's ministry. But from my study of God's word, and I think if you study the prophets out yourself, you will agree with me. That the primary job of the prophet was not prediction, it was proclamation. Now, certainly... Many prophets predicted future events. But that doesn't seem to be the primary role in their ministry. Primarily, what you find the prophets doing is going to the people and saying, Thus says the Lord. And the prophet's main job was then to give the people a message from God. Now, most of the time, this message dealt with their particular violation of God's word. One of the ways we could think about prophets in in the Old Testament especially is to think about them as God's prosecuting attorneys. Right. So think about the prophets like Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah and Isaiah. Their primary messages were specific ways the people were violating God's law and messages calling on them to repent. Right. They they were proclaiming, thus says the word of God, here's where you're wrong, do this instead. Many times, even their predictions of the future were based upon what God had already revealed in His word. The law had promised blessings to those who obeyed God and curses to those who disobeyed it. So for the prophets to go and say, thus says the Lord, you're bringing all of these curses down upon you. Yes, that may have been a prediction, 
But it was a prediction based upon what God's word said. In many cases, it wouldn't be much different than us going to someone and saying, if you do this, this will happen because you reap what you sow. Now, in some ways, we can say, well, that's a prediction, but it's based upon what is already revealed in God's word. We're simply saying, this is what God has said. This is what will happen. This is what the prophets did much of the time. Now, based on that, based on all that I just said, I would say the main thought Paul is talking about with prophecies is less about predicting and more about proclaiming. Now, again, many prophets who spoke to the Thessalonians may well have predicted, but I believe by and large what Paul is talking about is their proclamation ministry. They probably, many prophets who came to the Thessalonians probably had direct messages from God, but these would have dealt more with proclamation than prediction. Therefore, I'm applying this passage toward preaching, towards hearing God's word. Preaching is a form of prophesying where the preacher proclaims God's word. However, rather than saying, thus says the Lord, as though we had a direct message from God, the preacher says, thus says the word of God. Because we have a direct message from God via his word. Biblical preaching isn't meant to merely impart information. It's also meant to lead to transformation. Biblical preaching imparts information to the hearers and then urges them to live differently, to think differently or to believe differently because of the information that has been shared. Biblical preaching informs and exhorts. Biblical preaching informs from the word of God and then exhorts the hearers to do something about what they've just heard. Biblical preaching always seeks to bring change into the lives of those who are listening. The overall goal is to help people be conformed to the image of Christ. So how should we listen to God's word when we know the goal of preaching is to inform and exhort to bring change into our lives? Well, based upon these two passages, here's what I would say. We listen to God's word with eagerness, with discernment. And then we respond appropriately. We listen to God's word with eagerness, with discernment, and then we respond appropriately. So we're going to break that down and look at each aspect of that. We listen to God's word with eagerness. Right again. So in Acts, it says that they or in Acts, it says that they received the word with great eagerness. They were eager to hear what Paul and Silas had to say. The first part of Paul's command here is to not utterly reject the prophecies. Paul is confronting an attitude of contempt uh, about prophecies uh, in the content of the prophecies. Uh, And I say the content of the prophecies because Paul doesn't say do not reject prophets. He says do not reject prophecies. The This seems to be supported that he's talking about the content by the rest of what he says, since the thrust of the passage is to listen and to evaluate the content of the prophecies. So rather than to despise the prophecies, rather than despise the message, we should hear, we should listen with great eagerness. 
Now, the reason, of course, we're to listen with great eagerness is because of where the message comes from. A, a true prophet spoke the word of God. A biblical preacher preaches the word of God. It has nothing to do. We don't listen eagerly because of who is bringing the message, because of the person bringing it, because of their personality, because of the the way that they preach. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Instead, it has everything to do with the content of the message. We are eager to listen. Because it is a message from God's word. We don't despise preaching because it comes from God's word. Being eager to hear God's word. It reminds me of a story that I read about or I heard about years ago. If you were to to look at an old pulpit, I mean, a really old one, like from the Puritan times in the Puritan pulpits, they were bigger than ours. They were enormous. But off to the side of the pulpits, they often, now they would have just a, a, hand, a, a device sticking up beside them. And what the device was is it held an hourglass. And the hourglass was a gift from the church to the preacher. And when the song service was over and everything else was done, the preacher got up to preach. He would take it over and he would turn the hourglass so the sands could run. But it wasn't to know, make sure the preacher knew when to stop. That wasn't the point. The point was they wanted to make sure they got the full load. And if the preacher stopped before the hourglass was had run down, they had not. They, they kind of felt shortchanged. In fact, there are stories of the hourglass running down and the preacher coming to a conclusion and the congregation of Puritans, if you can imagine Puritans, basically hollering out, give us another turn. And what they meant was, turn it again and give us another hour of God's Word, which would mean he preached for two solid hours. Now the reason they wanted the preacher to preach for so long is because God's Word had only recently been translated into their native tongue, into English. Before this, God's word had been kept in a language, Latin, primarily, that they did not understand. And they were excited to get to hear God's word. They were excited to get to hear the service and to hear God's word in their native language and to understand it and to know what God had actually said to them. They were hungry for God's word. And so they desired to hear it preached and they eagerly listened to God's word. Now, sadly, this sort of eagerness to hear God's word seems to be missing from many in the American church in our day. And if we're just being brutally, ruthlessly honest, we would have to say it's missing from many who would call our church their home as well. The, The loss of an eagerness to hear God's word is one of the reasons it is so hard To convince people, to get people to be faithful to church. This is the reason any little thing that comes up comes into a valid reason to miss church. Why make going to church a priority when all we're going to do is sing and listen to God's word? It's not really anything exciting. It's not really anything new. Better to watch Desperate Housewives or 
eat pancakes or go to Little League football game. Our attitude about opportunities to hear God's word is very revealing about our desire for God's word. And truly, our attitude about opportunities to hear God's word is very revealing about the way we listen to God's word. We, we should eagerly listen to God's word. Secondly, we listen to God's word with discernment. In Acts, Paul preached that they eagerly listened. And then the Bible says that they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas was preaching was truly what God's word said. Paul said that we are to examine everything. Keep in mind this point there really were no such things as personal copies of God's word like we have Jewish synagogues would have had some handwritten copies of Old Testament books a really wealthy Jewish synagogue might have had handwritten copies of every book of the Old Testament but the New Testament was still being written and there's very little chance a small church and a new church like the Thessalonian church had even a portion of of God's word written down that they could have as a church to look at and to study. This means the prophets who came bringing messages were most likely bringing messages directly from the Lord. Now, while this was great, it was great to hear a message from the Lord. It posed a problem. False prophets existed. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And they would go to churches and they would seek opportunities to share their message from God with the church. Now, not every visiting prophet was a false prophet. Some genuinely were prophets of God bringing genuine messages from the Lord. But how do you tell the difference? How do you know the good from the bad? How, how do you know one, the right from the wrong? They would have to test what every prophet said. Against what they already knew to be true. They knew Paul was a genuine apostle of Christ. He was the apostle God used to, to bring them to salvation. So they could use his teaching. They could use what he said about the gospel and about Jesus and about how to live. And they could test what the prophets were saying against what they knew Paul had said. They now were going to have this letter. And it contains, while it's a short book, it contains a lot of really good information. And so they could test what any prophet said against what Paul had written down, plus what he had said. So the lesson for us is we're not to blindly accept what someone says regarding God's word. This is true whether someone is trying to predict or to proclaim. There is a, a very real need for us to take what someone says regarding God and his word and examine it against what we already know to be true. But we have a significant advantage over the disciples in Thessalonica. We have our very own copy of the completed word of God. It is in our native language. It is in our preferred translation and it is collectively or conveniently bundled into one handy dandy handheld volume that all of us have multiple copies of. We know this book we hold in our hands is the word of God. Therefore, when someone preaches or someone teaches about God 
about Jesus, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit, or about how disciples of Jesus ought to think, believe, live, or act. It must line up with what God has said in His Word. But to determine if it lines up with what God has said in His Word, we must examine what they say against God's Word. We must do the hard work of comparing what they say against what God has said. We see in this that we are to examine everything. Hold firmly to what is good. Abstain from everything that is bad. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what I want us to see there is that we are to examine what is preached, what is taught, or what is prophesied against what is written in God's Word. This is a, a critical thing for us to do. Someone once told me, I don't like to study the Bible on my own. I like to come to church and have the preacher tell me what it says and what it means and what I should do about that. In other words, they just want to be told how to believe and how to live. That's dangerous. This is how cults start. This is how cults end up having such an enormous amount of control over the just the daily lives of the people. When any one person and their interpretation of God's word cannot be challenged, cannot be questioned, that's a problem. That's how you end up moving to Africa and drinking Kool-Aid. Because this is what God said. We cannot have that mindset. Never, never, never take anyone's word for what God's word says and how it should be lived out without examining what they say in light of God's word. Too much is at stake. Our personal eternal souls are at stake based upon what we believe about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and salvation. And God's word is clear. If a false teacher deceives us, the false teacher dies and goes to hell. But guess what? We do too. The fact we were deceived does not save us. Too much is hangs in the balance. Too much is at stake for us to never test, to examine what they say against God's Word. Now, I take my job as a preacher seriously. I try to be a diligent student of God's Word. And I never get up in the pulpit to preach without being convinced that what I'm saying is biblically accurate. And the application I'm making is sound. And if I'm not sure, you've heard me. I'll say, now I'm not sure I can prove this, but here's what it seems to me. But even though I work to be a diligent student, and I try to be biblically accurate, put what I say to the test and see if it stands up against God's Word. I'm not saying test other preachers. And other teachers, I'm saying test every preacher and every teacher 
including me. Now make no mistake, it takes a significant amount of intentional effort to examine everything. But notice, that's exactly what it says. This is what we are commanded to do. Examine everything or test all things, depending on your translation, is not given as a you might want to. This is a command from God. He is telling us this is what we must do. But it does take a lot of effort. And the temptation will always be to take the easy way. Our flesh, all of our flesh, likes the easy road. All of our flesh is like a river and we take the path of least resistance. So when it comes to preaching or prophecies or predicting or proclamation, two roads are the paths of least resistance. It's easy to just say, well, I mean, I'm sure somebody has done their due diligence to make sure that that they're a good Bible preacher. So what they say must be true. It wouldn't be in the Christian bookstore if it wasn't true. Oh, they went to a good solid Bible college, so they they must be true. It's just easy to just accept everything and everybody. They're all right. It's also easy to just reject anything out of hand that, that sort of challenges us or goes against what we've already decided is true. Those are the the easy paths of life. But as disciples of Jesus, we are not called to take the easy paths of life in anything spiritual at all, ever. We are called to put forth the significant effort to examine everything against God's Word. We are commanded to examine everything against God's Word. So we may wonder, well, why is this command given? Why can't we just accept everything or reject everything? Why put forth all the effort? And there's three reasons. I didn't put them up on the slideshow, but they'll be easy to remember. First one is false teachers really exist. It would be great to believe that everyone who claims to preach or prophesy in the name of Jesus really was preaching or prophesying in the name of Jesus. Sadly, this is not the case. False teachers really exist. Now, some false teachers genuinely believe what they're saying. They themselves are deceived. And when they teach false doctrine, they deceive others. But they genuinely believe they're right. But their believing they're right doesn't change the fact that their doctrine is false. Now, some false teachers... They really don't have any illusions about the fact that they're right. Many of them, I don't believe, actually believe in a God at all. They know they're wrong, but they don't care. They're the kind of people God's Word talks about when it talks about false teachers who use godliness as a means of gain. It's a way to fleece the sheep, so to speak. False teachers really exist. They preach on Christian TV shows. They share things on social media. They write books you'll find at most Christian bookstores. They have large churches. They have small churches. They're in big cities. They're in small towns. They're respected by our culture at large. Many are accepted by the larger evangelical community. But none of this changes the fact that what they're proclaiming is a false doctrine 
that damns people for all of eternity. If we don't want to be deceived by false teachers, then we must listen with discernment. So we we examine all things because false teachers really exist, but we also examine all things because godly preachers can be wrong. Preachers are humans. They're fallible human beings who have been saved by the grace of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and sent to preach the gospel of God. And yet they remain fallible human beings. Because they're fallible human beings, it is possible for them to misinterpret something in God's Word. As I said, I never step in the pulpit unless I'm sure, I'm confident, that what I'm saying is biblically accurate. The reality is that doesn't mean I always am. I can think of at least two instances where I studied a passage out, I had the message, I had my notes, and I, and I make a full manuscript, I had everything going. And in the moment of preaching, as I looked down at the passage, I realized what I had over here was wrong. I had misread something. I had misunderstood something. And so in the moment, I had to change my sermon. I didn't go ahead with what I had in my notes. I went with what I felt what I was seeing right in that moment and preached that. But if I hadn't seen that in that moment, I would have went ahead with my notes and then I would have taught something that wasn't right. Now, part of my responsibility as a pastor is to be careful about who I allow to preach in our church. I take this very seriously. I have never allowed someone to speak in our church. I didn't trust to handle God's word accurately. But still, the fact remains. I could be wrong. Despite my best efforts. Someone I trust could be wrong. Despite their best efforts. Not malicious. Not demonic false doctrine. Just godly people. Who misunderstood a passage. We also examine. Because false teachers exist. Godly preachers can be wrong. But also. Godly disciples of Jesus can be wrong. Preachers aren't the only people. Who can misinterpret God's word. Any disciple of Jesus can make this same mistake, even you. Just because someone preaches something contrary to what you believe doesn't mean you're right and they're wrong. Now, that doesn't mean they're right and you're wrong. It just means there's a conflict between what you believe and what they're saying God's word says. And the reality is, it is just as possible that you're wrong as it is that they're wrong. When this sort of conflict arises, you can take the easy route. You can dismiss it out of hand and say something like, well, that's just not how I believe. And that is the road many people take. But it's not the best road to take. To be totally unwilling to ever listen to something different. And to be totally unwilling to even consider the possibility that you might be wrong is nothing but prideful stubbornness. Now, I'm not saying we should change with every wind of doctrine. Stability in what we believe is a sign of maturity. Ephesians 4 tells us that. But for any one of us to assume we have it all locked up and we could not possibly be wrong is nothing but 
pride. And for us to be unwilling to admit when we're proven wrong is stubborn. And when you put them together, you get prideful stubbornness. When we become unwilling to admit we could be wrong and we stop listening to things that challenge us, we stop growing. I can think of several times when I was challenged about what I believed. And rather than just saying, no, you're wrong or yes, you're right. I took what was said and I had what they said and then I had what I thought and I studied the Bible to see who was right. Now, some cases I felt I was right when I came to the end. At other cases, I felt they were right by the time I came to the end. But in both cases, in every case, I grew more by being willing to be wrong and letting God's word be the standard and whatever it said be right than I would have just by blindly embracing it or just simply rejecting it out of hand. We, if we want to grow in God's word and grow as disciples of Jesus, one of the primary ways we're going to have to do that is to listen with discernment. To listen with discernment, examine things, examine everything in light of God's word. That would be a path to deep, significant spiritual growth in our, hand, in our lives. We must listen with discernment. And then finally, we listen to God's word and respond appropriately. Paul tells us to hold firmly to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The idea is we're to do something with what we hear. We aren't merely to listen to God's word. We aren't merely to examine everything in light of God's word. We're to respond to God's word in one way or another. And we're given two broad ways to respond. And I'm going to go out of order to explain. Them. Second, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Now, while there is a I've heard in my life growing up many sermons on the more familiar King James abstain from every appearance of evil. I've heard that that sentence, that verse used to say, if it even has a, a whiff of being wrong, we ought to stay away from it. Right? That's why, well, I won't get into that. Lots of things have been preached under the banner of avoid all appearance of evil. But really, if you look at the passage in the context, that's not what it's talking about. Now, again, that is a broad context. I think we should, and, and again, I, I do prefer my Bible's translation, abstain from every form of evil, not just the appearance, the form um, there is a broad context. Clearly, if something is evil, we ought to abstain from it and not have anything to do with it. But that's, again, the context doesn't allow for that to be the primary application. Primary application has to do with not rejecting the prophecies and examining all things. It, it, what he's talking about primarily would be what, what I guess you would call doctrinal evil. In other words, false teaching. If after examining the prophesying or the preaching, we determine it's contrary to God's word, we're to reject it as false doctrine. And once we've done this, we're to 
abstain from having anything to do with the person promoting and proclaiming false doctrines. This means we don't visit their churches. We don't watch it online. We don't invite them to come speak at our church. We don't follow them on social media. We don't buy and read their books. We don't give them any opportunity at all to influence us with their false doctrine. And this is true if the doctrine is false regardless of anything else. Regardless of how polite they seem or how pretty their smile is or how large their church is or how popular their book is. We abstain. We stay away from all forms of doctrinal evil. Now with this, we do want to understand, though, different types of doctrine, different levels of doctrine. In times past, I've explained it as multiple tiers of doctrines, right? First tier, second tier, and third tier doctrines. First tier doctrines are the essentials of Christianity. These are the things every genuine disciple of Jesus believes, regardless of what denomination or non-denomination they belong to. This would be things like the full deity of Jesus, His substitutionary death and His literal bodily resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the inspiration, the authority of the Holy Spirit, of, of the Holy Scriptures. Holy Spirit too, but Holy Scriptures. Now, that's not a complete list, obviously, but you get the idea of the kind of doctrines we're talking about. These are not minor things. These are the, the doctrines we, we fight for. When Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith, that's what he's talking about. Earnestly contend for the deity of Christ. Earnestly contend for the substitutionary death of Christ. Earnestly contend for the literal resurrection of Christ. Earnestly contend for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Earnestly contend for the inspiration and the authority of God's Word. And contend is, is fight really hard. Those are, those are hills we die on. In fact, throughout church history, those are doctrines martyrs have died for. Because they would not renounce those doctrines. Though that important. Second tier doctrines are important for the life and the health of the local church, a local church, but they're not necessary for salvation. So these would things be things like baptism. Clearly, baptism is important. But how do we do it? Do we sprinkle? Do we pour? Do we dunk people under the water? And who is a fit candidate for that? Those who have already made professions of faith in Jesus? Or babies who were born into a, co- a family who's covenanted with God and so that baptism is a sign of their covenant, the family's covenant with God too. What about election? Has God unconditionally elected for someone to be saved and others to be condemned? Or is election conditional? The condition being repentance and faith in Jesus. What about perseverance of the saints? Can a genuine believer in Christ forfeit his or her salvation and be lost? Or are the truly converted secure in their salvation no matter what? Or is that only evident if they persevere to the end that they're genuinely saved? 
Now, obviously, those are very important doctrines, and I have strong beliefs about every single one of those. But heaven and hell doesn't hang in the balance on what we believe about those doctrines. And then there are third tier doctrines. Third tier are not unimportant, but they're not necessary for the for salvation. And they're really not even necessary for the life and the health of the local church. Right. So second tier doctrines. It's important that a local church have those nailed down. It's important as free will Baptist. We have something specific we believe about Baptist baptisms. Something specific we believe about election and perseverance of the saints. But it's not necessary that we try to convert our Southern Baptist and our Nazarene friends to our views on those things. They're already our brothers and sisters in Christ. Third tier doctrines are are doctrines. They're not necessary for salvation, but even within a local church, we're probably going to have some differences. And that's okay. These would be things like the return of Jesus. All disciples of Jesus believe he's coming back. But how? Will there be a secret rapture followed by a tribulation period with the secret rapture of the church and the, the lost will stay and there'll be a tribulation period? Or will Jesus just come back and take over? The end comes. But even with the rapture, when's the rapture going to happen? Will it be prior to tribulation? Halfway through the tribulation? Or at the End of the tribulation is the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. Is that to be taken literally? He's literally going to reign in Jerusalem for 1000 years or. Or is it symbolic of Jesus reigns for eternity? Again, those aren't necessarily unimportant doctrines. I have opinions on those. But if we were to talk about what we all believed about those tonight, we would have. Varying opinions on it. And that would be okay. Genuine disciples of Jesus can and do disagree on second tier doctrines and that's okay. These are doctrines we can agree to disagree about. First tier doctrines, however, are an entirely different story. Any denial of these doctrines is what constitutes the doctrine being a form of evil we are to abstain from. This is one of the proper responses to God's word. Secondly, we're told to hold firmly to that which is good. Once we've tested what's been said and we found out it's true. The job then is to take it and put it into practice. The idea of holding firmly to what's good isn't merely affirming it to be true, although it is that as well, but it's not merely that. It also carries with it the idea of putting the truth into action. We saw this in Acts. The Bereans listened eagerly to Paul and Silas' preaching. They examined the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. And when they found out they were, guess what they did? They changed their belief system. They believed. Massive changes, big changes. They believed everything they already believed. They changed because of what God's word said. This is what we are to do. We live what we learn. We do what we hear. If the preaching is biblically accurate, we put it into practice. 
This is what we must do. To be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Now let me be clear. This isn't because of the preacher who preached it. But because of the God who is the source of the message. None of this that I've talked about today is about the preacher at all. It's not about me. It's not about some other preacher. It is about God. It is about His Word and the authority it has on our lives. In many ways, I think this, what we're talking about tonight, is what it really means to be a person of the book. The problem in conservative evangelical Christianity is not that we don't believe right things. You could go into any conservative evangelical church, Baptist, non-denomination, Nazarene, Pentecostal, Charismatic, and the list of things we agree on that we say are absolutely right would be similar and it would be many. The question, though, is what do we do with stuff? Do we take it and do we put it into practice? Do we examine what is said in light of God's word and then do what God's word says? Liberals, liberal Christianity is well known for taking parts of God's word they don't like and just saying, well, that's not really God. Well, that didn't really happen. The parts of God's word that are inspired are the parts that speak to you. Doing all of these things, many things, to remove various parts of God's word that make them uncomfortable or that they don't like. And as conservative Christians, we are like, oh, heresy, evil. And it is, to be sure. But do you know many times what is the difference between a conservative Christian and a liberal Christian? Honesty. The liberal Christian will say they just don't believe that's God's word. The conservative Christian will say, I believe it's God's word, but then say, but I'm not going to do it. The honesty to say, I don't believe it, is many times, sadly, the only thing that distinguishes a liberal from a conservative Christian. We must examine all things. We must hold firmly to what is good. And we must abstain from every form of evil. This is what it means to be a person of the book. The way we respond to faithful Bible preaching says much about what is the authority of our lives. And when God and His Word are the authority in our lives, we listen, we discern, and we respond in the ways God's Word requires us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You tonight. You're great and glorious. You're wonderful and worthy. Help us to be a people of the book. Help us to be like the Bereans, eager to listen to Your Word, quick to examine Your Word, submitted to do Your Word and put it into practice however we need to. Get all of us in this and let us be good hearers of the word, Lord. Give us ears to hear, hearts to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.